0: So we just finished a banger of an episode with Scott Horton of antiwar.com. We got into all the backstory behind the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. So this is an episode you definitely don't want to miss. But before we get into that, I want to plug, I hardly ever plug here, our new crypto IRA service. Uh, that's something that I'm doing personally uh, over at innovativewealth.com. But the old way of doing this took months, wasn't scalable, and was a huge pain. But now you can get access to Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a few of the other major cryptocurrencies all within your retirement accounts. And from For my listeners only, I'll drop my minimum account size from $500,000 down to $5,000 if you email me at tim at innovativewealth.com. Let's face it, crypto is the future. And if you don't have some exposure to this asset class, especially within your Roth IRA, where the potential gains would be tax-free. I think you guys are nuts. But Pat, you know, again, past performance, no indication of future returns. But the earliest investors that started doing this with me and started listening to me uh, back when we first had access to something like this, but took months to do and lots of hoops to jump through. But, anyways, we got a better way of doing it. But those early investors, some of them have some positions that are up, you know, over a thousand percent tax-free. Again, do your own due diligence and research and don't just chase big returns. But head to the libertyadvisor.com to learn more about this. Email me at tim at innovative wealth.com So we could hook up your retirement with some actual crypto in it. We're not talking about an ETF, not talking about a trust of it. We're talking about the actual thing again, uh, Tim at innovativewealth.com and look, I hope you guys, uh, hope you guys email me and also hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Scott Horn. Take care. Well, everyone, today we have a very special show. Scott Horton is someone I've followed for a long time, and, he, and he's, in my opinion, the most prolific and knowledgeable foreign expert, foreign policy expert in the world. You can find his work at antiwar.com, the Libertarian Institute, and scotthorton.org. Actually, I think it might be anti, is it antiwar.com or .org? Both, okay. I, mean, I think you might be muted on that, but- Oh, he sorry, a- my bad.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's both, but officially it's antiwar.com, yeah.
0: Okay where he has a podcast and plethora of content that he's put out for nearly 20 years. So I highly encourage people to go check out his work. He's also the author of Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And enough already, time to end the war on terrorism. And I'll be honest, one of the best compliments someone's ever given me is once I had someone say that I was a Scott Horton of finance, economics, and crypto. And I think in terms of compliments, it doesn't get much higher of that in my book. So Scott, I thought we'd originally have you on to talk about Afghanistan, pull out, and that whole debacle. But I know you've got a lot to say on that. But given the state of affairs with Russia and Ukraine, what I'd like to do is this. I want to play a 30-second clip from uh, Senator Wicker. I don't even know his first name, but you know that guy doesn't even deserve to you know, have me know his first name. And I'm, I know you're good at talking, so I'll let you just run with that. Uh, but anyways, here we go. Here is Wicker on uh, Neil Cavuto. Just one second here.
1: American troops on the ground. We don't, do you know, we don't rule out uh, first use nuclear um, action. Uh, we we, right. we don't think it'll happen. But there's certain things in negotiations, if you're going to be tough, that you don't take off the table. And so I think we. I think the president should say that everything is on the table and frankly to the extent that you um, that you had Democrats on the show right before me being quoted as saying we need to be tougher. I support that and I appreciate that. I think they they represent the fear that we have the realization that we have in the Congress that losing a free democratic Ukraine to Russia
0: all right, Scott. I know you've probably got a lot to say about that. So maybe if you can give us some, you know, background on what's going on with, uh, you know, Crimea, Russia, Ukraine, NATO, but you know, wherever you want to take it, whatever you think is most pertinent, I'll just let you
1: run with it, man. All right. Well, first of all, thank you both for having me here. Appreciate it. Um, uh, very kind words and all that. So, listen. I mean, first of all, let me say that he actually just kind of made a factual statement there, and he was using it in a normative way, right? But when he said we do not rule out first strike nuclear is what he said but first strike attacks with nuclear weapons that's true america does not and in fact up until the obama government the uh blanket policy was we might use a nuclear first strike against anybody we reserve the right to do that and uh under obama he updated that to say no we only threaten nuclear first strike against russia china or another nuclear weapon state or iran which is of course not a nuclear weapon state Um, but that was certainly narrowing it down a little bit and then in trump's nuclear posture review he chucked that and so now we're back to threatening nuclear first strike against anybody in the world at any time you guys might remember i'm old enough to remember in 2007 when barack obama was talking about expanding the afghan war into pakistan and somebody asked him well, would you use nuclear weapons in the swat valley and he goes no I'll, who's talking about nuclear weapons right we're talking about drone strikes you have 500 pound bombs here hellfire missiles here nobody's going to use a nuke lady what are you talking about and then hillary clinton chastised him and said you never is still in the primaries in 07 08 i forgot exactly i think 08 still or yeah into 08 and she says you never say that you're not going to use nuclear weapons in a first strike. That's one of the primary benchmark cornerstones of American foreign policy. Everybody knows that. That just goes to show what a naive neophyte this uh, ridiculous Senator Obama really is and why you should give the nukes to me, not him, she said.
0: Actually, back then, I think you weren't even supposed to even address there even was a drone program. I don't think they even publicly uh even declared that we had a drone program until like what like 2012 maybe i mean that was a conspiracy tinfoil hat type uh statement for i mean we all knew that they had a drone program but it wasn't
1: yeah i mean they yeah they certainly didn't announce their real you know big time drone programs in pakistan well i mean bush had a drone program in pakistan that was widely known beginning in i'm not exactly sure but i'm going to say probably 2006. And then but Obama didn't really get the drone program going in in Yemen until 2009, although we know now from John Kiriakou that there were some drone strikes against the Houthis in support of the Abdullah Saleh government in Yemen as early as 2005. Um, but the drone war has been part of the, the war in Somalia since, uh, you know, certainly by 2007 or 8, and in, in the late Bush years there. Um but yeah anyways point being that the senator's right that america reserves the right to use nuclear weapons in an aggressive war that we would do a pearl harbor sneak attack first strike against someone and use nukes doing it that's america's official policy they call it deterrence but of course it's a threat of as uh, daniel ellsberg i'm not sure who coined the phrase but daniel ellsberg calls it omnicide the threat of killing our entire species off the face of the earth uh, well, well especially
0: if you, if you strike uh, Russia, you know, Putin has right. personally come out and said that, you know, like if you unleash a missile on me, you know, I'm going to release hell on earth on you. So, yeah. All right. Now,
1: so here's the good news. I'll sum this up real quick because I want to get back to this crazy senator for a second because there's a lot there, too. So, first of all, at the date that we're finally recording this, uh, which is on Friday the, what, 10th, right? Um, Biden has already climbed down. And they've told the world, including the Russians, that Ukraine will not be brought into NATO anytime in the next 10 years. So far beyond even a two-term Joe Biden presidency is the vow there. And um, the head of the CIA came out and said, well, we're not so sure that Russia is going to invade Ukraine like in the Washington Post's claims. So we're not really, you know, as concerned. I guess they might still, but we don't. We're not concluding that they're definitely going to, uh, he said. And then um, uh, they also leaped to the Associated Press. Uh, State Department officials told the Associated Press that, well, you know, we're considering telling, you know, leaning on Kiev to live up to their promises in the Minsk 2 deal to provide much greater autonomy to the pro-Russian speaking uh, or the pro-Russian leaning and Russian speaking uh, populations in the Donbass region in the far Eastern part of the country. And so in other words, they're backing way down from all that smack they were talking a week ago and and a month ago about we stand with Ukraine and you better not or there'll be severe consequences. And uh, at one point, oh, I'm sorry, I'm losing it. uh, It was one of the things that he, um, he said, oh, I know what it was, it was, he complained he, he said that, you know, the Biden people should be saying that all options are on the table. But in fact, the White House did say that just two, three weeks ago, that all I think two weeks ago, that all options are on the table for preventing this from happening. But then no, they climbed way down from that. Oh, and there was one more climb down was Biden did a press conference and the lady said, hey, uh, if Russia did invade Ukraine, would America send troops? And he said, no, we would not send troops. And so yeah forget it and this is way we don't have a war guarantee in fact that was what he said he goes hey listen now nato membership that's sacred but ukraine's not in nato so no but essentially don't you mess with latvia but nobody's messing with latvia right so fine um so look i mean at the end of the day this is You know i hate to admit it because i hate the the whole concept and i think there's got to be a better way um not including world government but something else um other than mutually assured destruction but mutually assured destruction works and at some point even senile old joe biden is sitting there saying well wait a minute we are talking about fighting the russians right well that's one thing we can never do We can never fight the russians and in fact if they do roll into latvia sorry guys we're not going to nuclear war and losing our population and risking civilization's survival. I mean, I guess nobody really thinks if there was a nuclear war that every last human would die. Some super-rich military people would be buried deep in the ground for a few generations, or some people in the you know southern, t- southern tip of Chile would figure out a way to try to survive or some kind of thing. but they'd be set back thousands of years humanity would be absolutely devastated. Billions and billions and billions and billions of people would starve to death in the event of a war between America and Russia. So that's it. You just can't do it. So everybody walk around and stick your chest out. um, And then, you know, hopefully then cooler heads like Joe Biden's in this case prevail. Same thing happened in 2008. Uh, Shaakashvili, the president of Georgia, thought that he had basically a flashing yellow light to try to invade and retake South Ossetia. Uh, which was, you know, a breakaway province that was under the protection of Russian peacekeepers under a deal brokered by our allies in the EU. And when Georgia attacked, they killed the Russian peacekeepers. So Putin responded by sending troops under, they have tunnels under the Caucasus mountains. And they sent, you know, troops and trucks and invasion force, essentially, and forced the Georgians back out and kept uh, South Ossetia's nominal independence, but really status as a Russian protectorate there in the South Caucasus. But during that time, according to two different reports, one of them was Ron Suskind. I forgot who reported the other one, but there were two different stories that said that Dick Cheney was urging strikes against Russian forces coming through those tunnels. So we could fly cruise missiles right in those tunnels, man. Let's get them. And that George W. Bush in his cool patient wisdom said, wait a minute fight the russians and and apparently said who here agrees with vice that we should kill the russians and nobody raised their hand and he said okay thank you and moved on to the next subject by then you know steven him and Stephen hadley had sobered up a little bit i guess and said look we're not going to push things that far so that's where we are right but now so back to the senator here. and and he you heard him if i heard him right he was praising democrats for also being horrible like him, right, and urging Biden to be tougher, and he's praising them for that. And so, look at the mindset in the Congress; it really reflects the mindset of the entire foreign policy establishment. And um, I forgot which uh, what exactly is her title now. The Victoria Newland, Robert Kagan's wife, is you know a big official in the State Department in European affairs now, and she gave a big briefing to the senators the other day. for people who are familiar with the story, she helped organize the coup d'etat of 2014 that got us into this mess back in the Obama years. So, of course, she can't go to the Senate and go, well, (laughs) I kind of was, you know, boiling some oil and some of it spilled and the fire spread because then it's my fault. So instead, it's all Russia's fault. So they did a bad job putting out the fire, you know, whatever bad analogy, but you get me. And so she can't tell the full truth to them, they don't know anything, right? They all get their news from TV. They don't read. And even if they read, they are only reading the Washington Post version. They're not getting, you know, a critical take on any of this stuff or one that would recall semi-recent events that have primary bearing on what's happening now or anything like that. So um, look, I mean, in other words, there are enough people who are so bad on this and so wrong on this and so full of bs on this and who believe their own bs on this that a cookie cutter standard right-wing republican senator like uh senator wicker from oklahoma there whatever his first name is that's essentially received wisdom right this is like he didn't even need to get the talking point in the email he knows where we stand we're tough on russia and when democrats are weak on anything especially something big like russia or china then that's our time to pounce on them and ridicule them. So um, it just almost goes without saying. Now, Tucker Carlson comes on TV and says, this is crazy, we should not be doing this. And you think, all right, good. You know, at least two or three cheers for the America first right-wingers who are following the good parts of what Trump said, if not what he did there. And um, he did escalate that war and send arms to Ukraine. Of course, he was famously impeached for holding up an arms deal for a little while. But he went on and armed them even more than Obama ever did. Obama was afraid to arm them after overthrowing the government there. But, um, but uh, Donald Trump today, if my tweets are to be believed out there, or not my tweets, but my Twitter feed is to be believed out there, sent out an email today saying, see, Vladimir Putin isn't properly afraid of Joe Biden because Joe Biden is weak and I'm strong. When I was in there, Vladimir Putin would do what we say and not the other way around, blah, blah, blah. Says. Even Donald Trump himself, supposedly Mr. America First, the guy who checked with Henry Kissinger first and said we ought to tilt toward Russia to balance against China, is saying, nuh-uh, see, Democrats, they're a bunch of wimps. Republicans like me, we're a bunch of tough guys, and look how tough we are. And so, in other words, the entire repudiation of the Bush doctrine that Trump led is canceled when he feels like it for simply the sake of macho political posturing when what he should be saying is what Tucker Carlson is saying, which is why in the hell are we involved in a border dispute with Russia? Quite literally 6,500 miles east of here. What the hell are we even talking about? This is completely crazy. We're talking about maybe bringing Ukraine into NATO. But NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. What the hell does that have to do with any nation bordering the Black Sea? And I'd go ahead and throw in Turkey in that. Why is Turkey a member of NATO? Why do we have NATO at all? When the Soviet Union ceased to exist 30 years ago, two weeks from now, right? On Christmas Day this year, it'll be the 30th anniversary of Soviet communism vanishing off of the face of the earth into a poof of nothing with nothing left over, with not one red commie regime left over out of the entire USSR. Red flag down over and out, over and done 30 years ago this month. And we're gonna get in between Ukraine and Russia. The whole thing's nuts. Now I'll shut up for a second, but if you want, I can go back and tell you about that coup of 2014 and all of that if you wanna know. Yeah, it's funny because actually I made a, I made a list of things I wanted to talk about and like you hit, made like a hit punch list
0: right there because I had Robert <laughs> Kagan on, on my list. And, and if you go to his own Wikipedia, the very first line says that he's like the father of like liberal interventionism. So yeah nothing more liberal than, you know, inter- interventionism. Uh, and then same thing with Victoria Nuland. So I, I did want to see if you could, I'll let John ask a question too, but I did want to see if you could go back to talk about sure. how the U.S. was essentially funding neo-Nazis in, in Ukraine. I forgot if it was like 2014 or 2015. Right. But for anyone that's been paying attention to this stuff, and it's certainly someone like you that's just, you know, is, you know, up to your eyeballs in this stuff. It's just so infuriating to, you know, see all the stuff that's going on. And and it it is amazing, too, how far Tucker Carlson has come. Because I was at two different financial conferences in 2015, uh, and it was just, by coincidence, he was like the the main speaker that they had at both mm-hmm. of these things. Were two different companies were recruiting me at the time, and uh, and I remember Tucker was saying at the time, "Oh, don't worry, it's going to be and again. This is right before the election. Don't worry, it's going to be Hillary." And it was a it was a room of basically like 50 year old white guy, financial advisors, more conservative. And so basically he's telling everybody, don't worry, Hillary's actually, you know, quite moderate. She's not that bad and she's going to be the next president. And so it's funny to see, you know, how far he's now turned because he was always sort of the controlled opposition, you know, on the on the other side of things. And obviously Fox News is controlled opposition central. Like nothing says, uh, you know, America first, like a uh, like a TV station that's owned by a bunch of Australian liberals that are paneling around with, you know, and Blackley Saudi shit right yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah it's just yeah it's that, just crazy i uh, i actually have another uh, thought as well you know what just have come out like over the last couple of days is that russia and india just recently did a uh, currency swap deal when it comes to arms and and they're skipping a the dollar as well i don't know if that had anything to do with the you know backing off alphabet or uh what's your thoughts in on the that largest sense well? sure
1: yeah i mean in fact there's a great piece by ted snyder today on antiwar.com which if you want to know why I know all this stuff, it's cause I've been absorbing anti-war.com every day for 20 years. Um, but, uh, there's a great piece by Ted Snyder here today about how, um, essentially this is what the foreign policy establishment in America always considered to be their absolute worst nightmare would be for Berlin and Paris to fall into an axis with the Russians and the Chinese. And then, but that's exactly what's happened is here. We have no reason to be really even allies with Europe anymore in, in a military sense. Cause there is no threat and, and we have no reason to want to freeze the Russians out cause they're not a threat either. All they do is export, you know, raw materials, essentially. Um, they have, as David Stockman points out an economy, roughly the size of, of Manhattan, but excluding the entire rest of America. Um, our, their GDP is roughly a trillion dollars. Our defense budget is roughly a trillion dollars, right? There's no threat there. Um, But uh, and then same thing for China. The worst thing that could possibly happen would be that China would invade Taiwan. It doesn't look like they're going to do that anytime soon or anything. Um, You know, there's a possibility there. But then even so, what? It's been American policy for 50 years that that Taiwan is a part of China and that they will be reunified someday, hopefully not violently, but. That's not the same as saying they're going to invade Japan, sack Tokyo, or take over, you know, Vietnam and Thailand and Korea and roll into Outer Mongolia and all the rest of these things. Even if they take Taiwan, there's no reason to think they're going to keep going from there. Taiwan's a part of China. It's been a part of China since the 1600s. Yeah,
0: China, yeah. Chinese Taipei.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and you know, it's a somewhat complicated history, but just the point being that. China's no world empire. The Americans are essentially projecting and saying, as we're losing influence and China's gaining influence, that this is a, first of all, zero sum game. And second of all, a complete like win or lose, win or take all scenario. Where if China gets, you know, has 51% of the preponderance in the world compared to America's 49, then we'll have none and they'll have everything and they'll be the world empire and we'll be dead. But like based on what, you know, um, they have no capability to do that. It's entirely against their tradition to do that. And they're beset by a bazillion of their own problems. And there are people yeah, who who that. who cast Chinese problems as just absolutely catastrophic and insurmountable. I don't know about that, but I do know um, this is a great point um, that I like the way Grover Norquist put it at this thing at Freedom Fest uh, in South Dakota recently, this panel discussion thing I did, we talked about how America, of course, and this is cliche, at least that we have two huge oceans and two friendly neighbors. And so America is really protected from everything except kamikaze hijackings of our own planes or, you know, hydrogen bombs coming over the poles. Otherwise essentially America is completely impregnable. Um, and faces, you know, ha- has no problems, right? Like what trouble did Mexico or Canada ever give us in the last hundred years? Not since Pancho Villa, did they cross the Americans on anything, right? Um, so but the Chinese, they're surrounded, first of all, internally, they have these restive populations in Xinjiang province, in Hong Kong, somewhat, although I don't know how restive really. But of course, you know, they're they're dealings with Taiwan. But also, 360 degrees in a circle. They're surrounded by everybody else. The Japanese and the Koreans and the Vietnamese and, um, and the Thai and then there's the Nepalese and the Indians and Bhutan. And uh, I'm probably skipping a couple. Um, uh, Myanmar, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, uh, Russia, Outer Mongolia, Russia again, And now back around to korea and china has to have a foreign policy for every one of those but we're supposed to believe that their foreign policy is take over everything yeah right there's just come on this is it's a great way to sell battleships but there's no reason to believe that it's true again even for the sake of argument conceding that they're going to invade taiwan the day after tomorrow still doesn't mean that they're a threat to so-called world order in any way or that they're going to close all the sea lanes or they're going to try to replace America as the world empire. Can you imagine Chairman Xi looking at George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and saying, yeah, that's what I want to do is replicate that. What I'll do is I'll blow our entire wad, get a bunch of people killed, waste $10 trillion and accomplish nothing. And then I'll then I'll rule the world. Hey, to, don't like, give many. Don't w- give w- any ideas. You
0: know. Yeah. Don't give many ideas because it seems like whatever, like the worst ideas are, <laughs> it always comes to fruition. But I mean, do you see that there's any sort of push? It seems like there is, like the new world order, the globalists, like are trying to sort of prop up China as like the next big superpower, and, and is one of the potential plays to have Russia and the U.S. battle each other, so that way, you know, you've got like the two piranhas fighting, and China's the other piranha that just waits to then take on the and. Im-
1: well. I mean, not in the sense of like subversion from within America, but in terms of these guys accomplishing the opposite of all of their goals, yes. I mean, really, I think, you know, this is kind of how I became such an anti-imperialist in the first place in the 1990s, because I'm a libertarian and not a leftist. I read some Chomsky and all that, but what really got me was the Bircher take, the right-wing nationalist, like, you know, a click to the right of Pat Buchanan even take, was that, and conspiracist take, was that the empire is not just suicide, that it's Kavorkian plan, that essentially the people in charge of America are deliberately destroying America the only way they really can, which is through imperial overextension. Otherwise, again, we're impregnable and indefensible and have a capitalist economy and all of these things. How could they ever destroy America? The only way to do it would be to have us try to take over the whole world. And then that would, you know, that's the treason that's all in the Freemason secret handshake or whatever. So I no longer am a conspiracist, ever since the Cheney years. Um, But I still agree that that would be the best way to destroy America if you were trying to, would be to follow the path that our leaders have had us on. And and which you can tell if you look especially at the years of W. Bush and Dick Cheney and the neoconservatives. They were trying to destroy America. Their whole thing was we can do whatever we want. As Dick Cheney said, deficits don't matter, right? Like we can do anything. We're an empire now. We can, and and the more we conquer, the more profitable it'll be. And remember, all these guys are lifelong politicians and wonks. None of them are really businessmen. When Dick Cheney was the CEO of Halliburton, he ran it into the ground. He was terrible. He was only good for his political connections, and he didn't even make good on those until he became vice president. But being a former Secretary of Defense didn't help Halliburton and Kellogg Brown and Root much at all in the 90s. Um, In fact, he made really bad decisions. So, um, you know, in other words, that's why all empires fall because they all hire a Paul Wolfowitz to come and say, oh yeah, no, it's gonna be great, trust me. And then it's not, and they end up blowing everything up. And so I don't think anyone would argue that the height of American power was in the spring of 2003. And then it's been downhill ever since then, all over the world for American power and influence because of that horrible, you know, self-inflicted and against these horrible, you know, these, uh, these poor victims as well. Um, but self-inflicted wound, uh, you know, carried out by the American establishment. You know, remember when W. Bush said, you know, there are people who, who point at security threats and I just say, bring them on. And people criticized him for that and he later said that was the one regret of his presidency that he said that because later there were kids parents came to them and came to him and said my kid's dead and i'm pissed off because i think you taunted his killer you know when you did that like this is not a game man and i think that that got under his skin that he it was so immediate from from his words to people getting shot in the next few days over there that he was like oh maybe i shouldn't have said that but my point is this What's going through his head when he said that? You know, we overthrew the government. We're occupying the capital city. We got angry dudes with rifles all around just waiting to see what's going to happen. And you say, bring them on. So what's going through his head, obviously, is that the U.S. Army is absolutely like America itself, invulnerable. And that these, you know, 19-year-old boys with M4s over there, M16s over there, more or less just through the sheer force of their will and their rifles can make the world however they want it to be i mean which one of you two pinko commie cowards would say that the u.s army is not really really strong of course it's strong look how strong it is so we can do whatever we want with it and that's what they believe and that's how all empires fall (laughs) is essentially they hire a bunch of idiots to destroy everything that they built and to blow to, to they it's uh, the, the comparisons been made oftentimes to the, the wealthy guy whose son wrecks the car, you know, this kind of thing, or, or blows the family fortune in Las Vegas, or this kind of deal, right? Where they're just not up to the challenge of carrying out the empire that their fathers had built and they ruin everything. Not that I'm for it, the empire. They built, I'm just saying that's who, and, and it is poetic, isn't it? That is Prescott Bush's son, right? It's the, it's the, the grandson of the Atlanticists, right? Of, you know, the rulers of the 20th century. It was their boy. It wasn't Barack Obama. It was W. Bush. that, And really, Barack Obama's not too far removed from the ruling class anyway on his mother's side. But yeah. still, you know, W. Bush is like blue blood, man. And, and so you can't deny who was in charge when they blew their last big wad, which I'm and sorry to connect this back to Ukraine. That included picking a fight with Russia. You know, it got us out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Look, on September 11th, um, Vladimir Putin was the first guy to call W. Bush and say, listen, man, I'm at your service. Here's the chance for Russia to, and America to really mend fences here and I can help you invade Afghanistan. I know you're going to invade Afghanistan. You can use our bases. We'll lean on our friends in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and and let you use their bases to, to launch the war from, And you know, until you get your other plans together, whatever it is. Bush said, thanks very much. Could that, 40 chest, later,
0: could that be 4D chess? Could that be 4D chess to be like, okay, we know, you know, that basically ended our empire. So we'll let the Americans. Well, hey, we'll help you go into Afghanistan. Maybe. And-
1: Maybe, but I don't think so, really, because I don't think he thought the Americans were dumb enough to replicate a decade-long struggle against the natives there, right? The mission was to hunt down the few hundred Arabs who were hiding out the friends of Osama. Not every last posh tune with a rifle, dummy, but, you know, could Putin have bet that W was that stupid? I don't know. I bet he probably gave it, you know, 60, wasn't, 40, It didn't or, rule it out. You know? it didn't rule it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 55-45, something like that. You know, I don't know. Um, but even then, that would have been a, a long game to play. But at the time, he was absolutely putting himself at America's service and trying to make friends. And Bush, Bush withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. And then he embarked, and Clinton had started this, but uh, Bush really doubled down on what they called the color-coded revolution, which was essentially the National Endowment for Democracy and George Soros-funded think tanks and so forth, going into pro-Russian-leaning countries in Russia's near abroad and fomenting these coups d'états, and so instead of the CIA doing it directly, like Iran in '53 and Guatemala in '54, they essentially just outsource it to the NED. I'm sure the CIA does help coordinate these things too. Um, but one of the big ones was the Orange Revolution of 2004 in Ukraine, where what happened was was a guy named Yushenko was running against uh, a guy named Yanukovych. And I'm pretty sure Yanukovych was the sitting president already at the time. And he's the pro-Russia leaning guy. And Yushenko was running against him. And all of a sudden, Yushchenko comes down. He's all sick and he gets these weird warts all over his face. And the accusation is that the Russians fixed the election and poisoned him in order to, uh, to uh, give the election to their guy. And they ended up rerunning the election and handing it to the, the, uh, Yushenko, the guy with the things on his face, the pro-American guy. And I would urge people to look up Justin Romando's coverage of the Orange Revolution at antiwar.com for his explanation of what really happened there, which was not that the FSB had poisoned him. That was a hoax. Um, And he goes through and explains. And I was the editor of those articles back then, too. So I know he does a damn good job of showing his work, too. Um, And um, so uh, then 10 years later, Barack Obama overthrows the same guy. Yanukovych, the pro-Russian-leaning guy. So here's how it broke out. In, and I don't know if this part of it was deliberate, like uh, you mentioned, 4D chess, or just maybe old, plain old 2D chess. Um, but um, what happened was Ukraine was supposed to sign a new trade deal with the European Union. And um, then they showed up at the meeting, and the... Germans, really the Americans, I guess, through the Germans had, um, uh, it's just a who's you're really looking for. Although I'm sure that Anthony Gregory article is also great. Um, but, um, they, they showed up at the meeting and they said, listen, if you want to do the trade deal with us, you have to not do a trade deal with Russia. It has to be exclusive. And not only that, we're going to loan you a bunch of money through the IMF and you're going to have to pay it all back and all this gangsterism. Well, Yanukovych said, well, geez, I feel like a bride who showed up at my wedding to be greeted with a prenuptial agreement. And now I'm kind of turned off and I lost the romance and I'm not so sure I want to go through with it anymore, which I thought was pretty funny. And then he didn't go through with it. The Russians said, well, we don't care if you have a trade deal with the Europeans too, and we'll give you billions of dollars instead of loaning it to you with IMF strings where we gangsterize you out of all your best, most fertile soil and whatever else you got. Um, and so Yanukovych said, well, I'm going to go with the Russians then. So this is in <clears throat> uh, October, November in 2013. In fact, in October, Carl Gershman, the head of the NED, wrote an article in the Washington Post where he even threatens regime change inside Russia. It says if Putin doesn't like it, he might find himself on the other end of these kinds of efforts inside Russia itself. And then they fomented a coup. And they had this what they called the Maidan revolution, where mostly hard right wing nationalists from the far western part of Ukraine rallied uh, to overthrow Yanukovych and the Americans and the uh, European Union, with the help of the United Nations, intervened to make it happen. And they essentially strong armed Yanukovych into signing a deal that said that he would pull his police back and uh in exchange i'm skipping ahead but essentially there have been all the sniper fire from you know under mysterious circumstances um in the maiden and all of this so they that was like their their Tahrir square is what they called it the Maidan, um and so they said you pull all your cops back and then the protesters also agree they will pull back and we'll have a new election in november this is you know going on in february of 2014 and yanukovych lives up to his side of the deal and pulls his troops, his cops back. And then the protesters just ransack and cease all the government buildings and force him to flee, flee town. And he ends up fleeing first to Eastern Ukraine and then to Russia. And then America immediately recognized the new coup junta as the legitimate government of Ukraine. So, and I should hasten to mention that two, two important facts here. First of all, that some real no fool and Nazis were heavily involved in this coup. And I know that these days, anybody to the right of Hillary Clinton is called a Nazi and that's stupid, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these guys are the proud grandsons of the Galatian SS who helped the actual Nazi regime perpetrate the Holocaust in Ukraine in during World War II against Jews and Poles by the tens and tens of thousands of them. And they are, you know, the, their mascot is a guy named Stepan Bandera. Who served in the Galatian SS was one of the commanders in the Galatian SS and helped carry out that Holocaust. And, uh, you know, unlike these goofball tiki torch parades that these, you know, Trump supporter kids did at the University of Virginia a few years back, these guys do real torch parades that are meant to terrify the hell out of people, like back in the battle days of the brown shirts and the black shirts of the fascists of Europe. And so um, these groups the Social Nationalist Party, you like that? The Social Nationalist Party renames Foboda, led by a guy named Tanny Bach. Uh, If you just put his name in Google image results, if they haven't censored it yet, you'll see him hiling Hitler there. Um, And uh, he was one of the ones that uh, Victoria Newland, again, Robert Kagan's wife, uh, went with John McCain to the Maidan, passed out sandwiches and cookies, and stood on the stage with Tanny Bach, and declare that this is the future of Ukraine and you have America's support and all of these things. Um, And uh, including Andre Perubi, who was from right sector, which is even more of like a younger and more brutish, more like street gang type Nazi movement there in Ukraine as well. He ended up becoming the speaker of the parliament for about four years. Um, And uh, and then later on, the Azov battalion, which was involved in the coup, I understand, uh, later became much more prominent in leading the fight in the East, that's to skip ahead, but it's another prominent uh, part of the neo-Nazi movement there in Ukraine that was involved in the coup, the Azov battalion. Again, proud descendants of the Galatian SS and you know bearers of its legacy. Now, um, so once they accomplished the coup, First thing they did was outlaw Russian as an official language. And here's a state, a a nation state that is very divided. And the the Russian speakers in the far east of the country, um, it'd be like if they outlawed in America, they outlawed uh, the Spanish language on government documents. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. We're just X many millions of people are immediately disenfranchised. Uh, we don't have an official language at all in America, but I'm trying to come up with a, with a maybe, or
0: maybe like outlaw MAGA hats or, or something as soon as uh, yeah. you know, Biden gets in there
1: or French yeah, or, or, or,
0: or, or, really like, or outlawed outlaw French in uh, in Canada.
1: Yeah, yeah, something like that. We're like you're you're seriously making it where people can't do business in the most basic sense, land deeds and loans and important matters. You know, they're frozen out of government documents and and. Uh, whatever regulations they have to obey and everything else becomes impossible so it's a this is a real threat this is like
0: you you can't do anything unless you're vaccinated i don't know yeah yeah exactly dystopian world welcome welcome to Canada.
1: yeah um so that was the first thing they did that caused outrage and then uh four previous presidents signed a letter saying that we demand that the new government kick the russians out of the naval base at sevastopol on the uh, western coast of the crimean peninsula in the black sea now a little bit of history the crimean peninsula was taken from the turks by the russians in the 16 no pardon me pardon me uh, 1780s so right at the time when america was was 1783 right when america signing the peace with britain and we're under the articles of confederation so in other words you can make a direct comparison to New York or New Jersey. So if New York and New Jersey belong to the USA, then Crimea belongs to Russia. That's so how it's always been. And yet, uh, like uh, I mean, if you look at who were the British fighting in the Crimean War, the Russians. They're trying to take it from the Russians. You know, it's the Air Peninsula way back then. See, um, uh, Montgomery Burns from The Simpsons remembers that, but nobody else does. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, sorry that wasn't funny. Um, But so the deal is, uh, oh, here's one, the Russians uh, with the Soviets, but especially the Russians lost hundreds of thousands, three to 400,000 men fighting to keep the German Nazis out of the Crimean Peninsula. Okay, so like you think about what West Point means to New Yorkers, or what the Alamo means to Texans, and think about if we had lost hundreds of thousands of men defending the Alamo, what that would mean. And if that was only 75 years ago, not 175 years ago, 200 years ago, right? Um, so, um, so then, but what happened was when, uh, when Khrushchev was the general secretary of the, or when he was like making the rise to be general secretary of the Soviet Union after the death of Stalin, he made a deal with the communist party in Ukraine that they would support him and he would give them Crimea. And at the time, it didn't really matter because everybody was answerable only to the Kremlin anyway, the USSR and the Soviet Union and the, you know, the Soviet republics and all that was a hoax, right? It was, everybody was answerable to Moscow. So here's this territory that was something like 80 or more percent so-called ethnic Russian, although I think they're all Slavs, but Russian speakers compared to Ukrainian speakers. Um, if somebody wants to quibble with me about ethnicity later, i that's okay. Um, but I don't really think there is one, um, but anyway, Uh, They're Russian speakers and they're pro-Russian in their cultural heritage and all of that anyway, and their nationality, let's say. Um, And they've, you know, been there for all of this time. So uh, then, in other words, what's so holy about Khrushchev's diktat from 1958, right? Nothing, right? There's nothing, you know, so important about that in the first place that he gave Crimea to Ukraine. Um, But then, so at the fall of the Soviet Union, again, 30 years ago this month. There was the question what are we going to do about the the now russian not soviet but now russian naval base at sevastopol on the crimean peninsula now that the crimean peninsula ostensibly belongs to ukraine and the russians you know at that time were in no position to you know fight anybody about anything essentially on the ropes so they said look we'll just keep leasing the naval base from you guys and that status quo held for 25 years until Barack Obama hired a bunch of Nazis to overthrow the government there and then explicitly threatened to kick the Russians out of that naval base. And only then did the Russians take the Crimean Peninsula. And you may not know this because certainly this is almost never included, unless you hear it from me or Ray McGovern or just a very few others, that when the Russians took the Crimean Peninsula, this is now March 2014, they didn't kill a single person, not one. It was their special operations forces, like their SEALs, essentially, their naval special operations forces That's and Marines, not. I guess. Yeah, they they pulled off their patches and went to, you know, uh, call themselves little green. They, the Americans called them the little green men. They took off their insignia and they essentially just went outside and stood on street corners and said that this land belongs to us now. And there was footage. I don't know if anybody could find any more, but I've seen it where the Russians fire warning shots over the heads of some Ukrainian soldiers and say something to the effect of you boys ought to turn around and get the hell out of here. And they say, "Da da, yeah, let's do that and turn around and leave. And so then that was it. So nobody was killed, nobody. And it wasn't really an invasion. It was a coup de main. They just went outside and took over. Um, And then they held a plebiscite and it was, you know, uh, German polling firms and others who came in and confirm these numbers, that they had essentially a super duper majority above 70 or 80% vote in favor of joining the Russian Federation at that time. And there's no surprise for that. Like, so for the Tatar minority and the pro-Ukrainian minority there, they're very small. They're like 10% each or less. So did they dissent? I don't know, maybe, quite possibly. But, you know, if there's anything like popular sovereignty when it comes to this or that landmass choosing which security force it wants to be governed by or not, then, you know, maybe an 80% threshold is reasonable. (laughs) Something like that, I don't know. I'm not that kind of a libertarian theorist, boys, honestly, of all these brass tacks, but um, it certainly didn't seem so unreasonable at the time, especially in terms of the provocation that it was a reaction to. And then um, to wrap things up here, shortly after that, the pro-Russian population in the East which in fairness was transferred there in the 30s by Joseph Stalin, um, where they kidnapped a bunch of Tatars and moved them out to the steppes of Uzbekistan somewhere or something um, and brought in all these Russians. But this is the legacy of that. Well, it was their guy that they had voted for who'd been overthrown. And they said, well, listen, If you guys can occupy all the government buildings and overthrow a democratically elected government, well, then we can sure as hell occupy some government buildings and refuse to recognize your new coup d'etat junta. How do you like that? And so that's what they did. And then Kiev immediately launched what they called the war on terrorism to come in and smash them. And so that war lasted throughout 2014 and uh, ended up killing tens of thousands of people. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. One of my major points I want to say real quick, and people can just look this up. Two weeks before the coup, presumably the Russians intercepted and posted audio of Victoria Nuland, who was then the Deputy Secretary of Defense for European Affairs, um, which is essentially the ambassador to the EU at large, some kind of position like that. She's on the phone with Jeffrey Pyatt, the ambassador to Ukraine, and they plot the whole coup. We're gonna have Andre Peruby's going to be the prime minister. We're gonna keep Klitschko the boxer on the outside to be our PR guy. And um, we're gonna have, oh, did I say Perubi Peruby uh, went to the speaker of the house. It was uh, Yatsenyuk. Arseny Yatsenyuk will be the prime minister. And uh, as Newland put it, Yats is the guy. He's the guy we want. And anyone can go listen to that. And if you remember it, or if you vaguely remember it, what you remember is, that Victoria Nuland, the diplomat, used the very undiplomatic language and said, F the EU. And, but the question was, well, wait, why F the EU? Aren't they our friends? What was she complaining about? She was complaining the Germans aren't moving fast enough on this coup. And if they're not, if the EU led by the Germans are not going to go ahead and force this thing through now, then F the EU. We're just going to do it ourselves. And I'm going to get with the vice president, Joe Biden, and we're going to get with Robert Sari from the United Nations. And we're going to midwife this thing. We're going to set it sail. We're going to push it through. We're going to make it happen. And so that was the whole conversation. And they posted it. The Russians post on YouTube, presumably. And then two weeks later, they did it anyway. And they got away two weeks later. And famously, Ron Paul was on Fox News. Um, and they said, Ron Paul, why do you keep saying there's, going, there's a coup going on in Ukraine? And he goes, because there is a coup going on in Ukraine. Are you kidding me? And two days later, the guy fled at, you know, with the braying mob at his heels. So
0: she was mad that the Germans weren't acting quick enough to fund that's actual right. Nazis in Ukraine. Basically, that's like right. The Germans wouldn't fund the Nazis, right? And, and, and That's but it was all underneath liberal Brock Drone Bomber. And now what a slap in the face that she's the uh, diplomat serving under Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs right now. I mean, it's just such a slap in the face when I saw her get put back into the fold with uh, with yeah. Biden over there. Just I, I mean,
1: look. I mean, it's worth pointing out, isn't it? Especially in these days of PC hypocrisy and all this stuff, we're talking about the first black president and some of the most prominent and active Zionist Jews in America. The Kagan family, Robert Kagan and Victoria Newland, his brother, Fred and his wife, Kimberly from the Institute of the Study of War, major champions, Robert uh, of the entire Kaganite, pristolian yeah. foreign policy, Fred, Directly involved in promoting the massive failed surges of Iraq in 2007 and 8, and Afghanistan in 2009 through 12, uh both of which led to tens of hundreds of thousands of extra deaths, and uh you know, still complete failures as a result. You know, the primary. Well, speaking, uh, but before, I know yeah. we only
0: have you for a little bit longer. But speaking sure. of uh you know Victoria Newland or Robert Kagan, Robert Kagan's associated with you know founding PNAC with Bill Crystal along with you know mm-hmm. uh, project you know Project for a New American Century. And, you know, are you wanted right now as, as you know, for, for murdering uh, Bill Kristol <laughs> during that debate? I mean, I'm saying this facetiously. Uh, but no, I, I actually, at one point, I actually felt bad watching that. And, and like, this is like feeling bad for like Hitler or something. Like, oh my God, like you just destroyed him up one side, down the other. Uh, so hopefully you're not kicked out of the Libertarian Party for, you know, going against the non-aggression principle because you just <laughs> completely... And for anyone that wants to see, this is on YouTube right now. Uh, that's, that's what, a couple, couple months ago, you had taken down... Um, bill crystal who's in a big time neocon uh so for anyone that hasn't seen this highly recommend watching this but what was it like when you first you know were in the room with you know with a guy that's just that i don't know what
1: the best word to him is vile or just uh yeah it, it was it was pretty crazy man um i i um i've been nervous about it for two years but i was not nervous about it that day you know um luckily i just you know figured it was going to be fine and i did um I don't know if you guys saw this but i did this little stand-up comedy routine at uh tom woods 2000th episode celebration thing where i talked about how before the debate gene epstein has me and bill crystal sitting next to each other in the front row watching the stand-up comedy even before that we're like chit-chatting and then the stand-up comedy guy goes and then now it's time for us to go up on the stage kind of thing so the joke at the tom woods thing was i'm sitting here chit-chatting with bill crystal about the weather and housing prices and all of this stuff. And I'm thinking, is this ethical for me to be friendly to him right now? Because here in a minute, it's going to be different. I know. I don't know if I'm like lulling him into a false sense of security by being pleasant at all, but I,
0: well, if he had a game plan going into fair. that, it's like what Mike Tyson says, you know, everyone's got a plan till they get, till I punch mm-hmm. him in the face and you definitely Plus. were uh metaphorically
1: just wiping the floor it's, with heaven. uh it's it keep great. your
0: friends close and your enemies closer i guess you know, that's a good mm. old uh saying
1: yeah but no so listen i mean i'm glad you weren't disappointed in me i um i had two years i knew that was coming for two years the thing got delayed for a year and a half because of the germ and so here you know we finally have a chance to do it and um so uh you know i had to skate a fine line i knew you know gene had counseled me that. You can't just get up there and mytilate the guy. The debate is not whether Bill Crystal is a good man or not. The debate is whether, you know, this willingness to overthrow other governments is good for the United States or not. Just stick to the point and I got my digs in, but I couldn't like go overboard and just completely mytilating him and destroying him because that wasn't really the point. And I'm still kind of kicking myself over all the things I wish I had said, but time is so limited
0: but I I only you're the only person that knows what you would have said but we all we all loved it and and I was a, a libertarian, I was a delegate for the party this past go-around for yeah. Jennifer Hornberger out of Arizona and wasted tons of time trying to get on all that and I mean I'm, I'm coming more from like the ANCAP perspective and this whole thing doesn't really matter and uh, you know trying to You know, at this point, to save ourselves, but and if you had maybe like a five-minute version rundown, because I did hear you on the Charlie Robinson show talking about, uh, you know, the Afghanistan pullout. But you know, that's sort of what I originally wanted to get you on, but now with everything that was going on, could you give maybe like the five-minute kind of rundown on, you know, was it botched? I mean, it seemed like that they you couldn't have done it worse. Like if you if you tried, it was like my initial layman's perspective? Because we're mainly, John and I are mainly economic finance guys, but, you know, from you that's in the thick of it, what was, you know, sort of what went on like the... uh...
1: Well, it was a mess. I mean, I'll tell you this. It's still the best thing Joe Biden's ever done in his miserable life. And same for Donald Trump, for that matter. He's the one who pushed this deal through. And, you know, what really happened, to be perfectly clear here, is that the Taliban won the war. There's no reason that Zalmay Khalilzad who is, you know, an original neocon studied under Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago with Paul Wolfowitz and uh, well, Richard Pearl, I guess Wolfowitz was a Wulster guy. Anyway, um, original uh, neocon, the guy that picked Hamid Karzai to be the first sock puppet government, uh, you know, president for W. Bush when the war began, he went and really signed a deal with the Taliban. Now he could have done some BS, Israeli peace process type crap where nothing ever happens. Uh, which is, you know, certainly what his predecessors did. But he like signed a real no fooling deal that did not include the so-called Afghan government in Kabul whatsoever, and um, was simply between the Americans and the Taliban that we will leave and and we'll have a ceasefire until we leave. Um, and uh, your job is to you've got to promise to at least talk to the Kabul government, but you don't have to promise to really solve anything. And. You have to promise to keep Al Qaeda and ISIS down and out. And then if you guys will swear to that, then we'll get the hell out. And that was it. If so, in other words, the very same deal they could have had with the Taliban any month of any year for the last 20 years, this whole time. Uh, they could have had that deal all along. But um, as I show in my book, Fool's Aaron. Um, but so you know, all credit to Trump for somehow he got well. I, I think that somehow is Khalil Saad understood that um that uh the war is over i mean what are we going to do we're going to send another 50 or seventy-five thousand men back and try to start the war all over again and somehow make this make sense and, and work out it's not going to happen so we got to find a way out of there where we can save enough faith this was a big um kind of cliche from the vietnam days at the, the end of the vietnam war we need a decent interval between the time when we leave and the time that the people we've been fighting end up taking over the capital city, right? In the, in the case of Vietnam, they gave us almost two years. Um, in this case, we had a few months. But then, so what happens? Trump loses the election. Biden comes in. Biden doesn't want to live up to Trump's deal because then it's Trump's deal, not Biden's deal. And the Pentagon, of course, is on a full court press to get him to change his mind. So he has to at least promise to give it a review and see and this and that. So they end up deciding right before the deadline which was may 1st that we're going to kick the can down the road four months now on one hand they're breaking the deal but it was pretty clear right away within a few days anyway that when they say four months they mean four months they're not bsing about that they broke the deal but they're not breaking it further they bent the deal but they are still leaving and the fact of that was just in the rounding up of the men and the putting them on the planes. I mean, they were pulling out of there. And, um, and it was clear that the Pentagon had pushed and pushed and pushed. And then Biden had made his decision and made it firm and made it clear to them that we are doing this. And that much was clear when he gave his speech about it. So, or, or shortly after that anyway. So, but what happened was then the Taliban stuck to their schedule. The ice melted. It was fighting season. And their timetable for taking over the rest of the country, they decided to stick with it, which that was pretty ballsy of them. They're pressing their luck. Essentially, they that's the kind of thing, if anything, that would have been the kind of thing that could change the Biden government's mind that maybe we do need to stay if the Taliban are going to take over so rapidly that what? That it's a humiliation for the Americans, that they don't want it to look like that on the way out. So but the Taliban went with it anyway. And as was predicted by me in both of my books, one of them four years before the event, um, the other you know six months before the event. But also someone told me they heard an interview of mine where I was talking with Gareth Porter in 2012 predicting a fall of Saigon moment with the Taliban just walk right back in to Kabul. Um, this is something I've seen uh, coming for a very long time that uh, when it came down to it, the Afghan government just evaporated. The Afghan army just evaporated and the Taliban walked right in. The only thing that was keeping them out of the provincial capitals was American B-52s and B-1 bombers. They want to come and seize the provincial capital. They're going to need a big garrison of men where, you know, to keep control, and we can bomb those, right? But, if, but instead, they just took over all of the country except the provincial capitals, right? But they owned everything. So the idea that they were going to end up taking over uh, very quickly you know, was pretty obvious. Um, I don't know if even I anticipated how absolutely uh, rapid it would be, but it, was, it took them about six, eight weeks to take over the whole country. And one of the first things they did was they took over the North. So how are you gonna have a Northern Alliance when the Taliban already preempted you and headed you off to the pass and they already rule Kunduz and rule mazar sharif and all of this stuff. So they had a great pincher movement strategy on the ground and see now, Get to the catastrophe of the pullout from the American media's point of view and all of this kind of thing. Um, and you know, from an honest point of view, I- in a way as well, the two big flaws are one, we left behind all this weapons and the, all these weapons and equipment for the Afghan National Army, which ceased to exist, and the Taliban got it all. Oops. Whoopsies. And the other thing was, they had to evacuate all the civilians from the embassy, thousands of them, in Kabul. Um, and at that point they'd already given up the Bagram air base to the Afghan army. And they thought, well, worst case scenario. And I know, cause I was talking to an army officer who was involved in all of this, a paratrooper, they were planning on going back to Bagram. If we have to, we'll go back to Bagram and we'll evacuate everybody by helicopter to Bagram and then we'll fly them out from there. Well, the Afghan national army ceased to exist. They gave the keys to the Taliban. The Bagram Air Base was lost, so now all they had left was the Kabul airport, and they had a deal with the Taliban. Look, you guys come in. Go ahead and enter the city. We won't resist you. You provide security. You take over police, because at this point, the president had already fled with a few hundred million dollars he'd stolen. right? The government was you know, essentially ceasing to exist in that moment. The Americans asked the Taliban to come in, you come and be the police and keep the peace and provide security for us to get out to the airport to get the hell out of here. And then you have all these scenes of panic, like Vietnam and the false Saigon with the helicopter on the roof of the embassy. Here you have people hanging along to the side of the planes as they're trying to take off and get out of there, which was ridiculous because they kept flying people out of there for a few weeks after that. There was no need for anybody to do that. It was a, a panicked stampede. But the worst public relations you can imagine from their point of view. Okay. Now, so what's the solution to these two things, right? The only solution would be to rewind the clock, go back to the early Biden government, one stick by the May 1st deadline so that the Taliban hasn't begun fighting yet. You know, they're they're still cooling their heels um, until fighting season begins in May. So if you stick with the with the deal. The Taliban are starting not from square one, but at least from square one, as far as the year 2021 is concerned, starting from way back there. And and you're leaving right then. You're buying yourself a decent interval, right? So they're not going to take over on their timetable. They're not going to take over Kabul till August or September. So, you know, you can go ahead and get out now and hopefully the American people look away soon enough where that's the first thing they could have done. But the second thing they would have had to do Is they would have had to destroy all those weapons and all that equipment, all those trucks, all those armored vehicles, all of those uh, attack helicopters and all of those light arms, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of rifles and RPGs and whatever other all equipment, night vision equipment, all this stuff. They would have had to destroy all of it. And then the only way to justify that would have been to tell the truth. And in other words, Joe Biden coming on TV and saying, listen, we're going to destroy every last weapon that, we, are, that you know, we were going to leave to the Afghan National Army. But we're going to do so because the Afghan National Army is such a joke that to leave these weapons in their hands would be irresponsible. The Taliban would be absolutely certain to get them by the end of the year. We assess with the highest confidence. And so, yes, one, we will be blamed for undermining the Afghan National Army. destroying all their equipment but two screw you tough luck we gotta do it anyway because we were going to get the same result anyway as far as they're falling apart but we would lose our um but then all the equipment would end up in the hands of the taliban now you gotta understand and they understood of course that that would be absolutely outrageous for them to do that politically and then the same thing with the civilians they would have had to say listen the government that Bush and Obama, remember all of Biden's guys, including Biden, are all Obama's guys, right? So they would have to say the government that we built there is an absolute and total and 100% complete joke. And we're pulling all our civilians out for their safety. And now what? They would have had to argue the truth that, yes, you could blame us for undermining the government by betraying such a lack of confidence in it. Got to tell you, we've got no confidence in it. It really is that bad. And it really is that determined to fall. And the president, Ghani, really is that corrupt and shallow and weak that the chance of him standing and fighting with his men are less than nothing. And, you know, we already bought him a helicopter ticket to Qatar anyway, or what a UAE anyway. So just forget it. Um, for them to do that politically would have been essentially impossible. So what they do instead. They lied. And they said, well, yes, we're leaving, but we're leaving because of what a great job we've done building up the Afghan government and building up the Afghan army. They've got a 300,000 man army armed with the best equipment we could, the American taxpayer could buy. So they ought to be able to last at least a few months or years. year or something. We always said they should be making a deal with the Taliban before it's too late. But anyway, we're getting out. So that was their plan that we're gonna bluff our way out of here. And then of course it didn't work. The, The dishonesty turns out it didn't play out. How are you gonna base your plan on a lie? It's not gonna work. And so the truth was a really hard truth, a really bitter pill. So they didn't dare tell it and do the right thing. So they tried to do the right thing ultimately in getting the troops out, but by BSing their way out the door, and that is what blew up in their face. Well, they BS their way in, BS their way out, and you know how fitting
0: that it was going to be—you know, Mayday—that they wanted to do this pullout. Yep. And I remember seeing a video from Biden, it was, it was it was a while ago, maybe like 15 years ago. And he was saying something to the effect of he was talking to somebody his really, you know, sly politician look on his face that he had, you know, especially like back in the day when he, you know, sort of knew what was going on and was coherent, where he was saying, uh, you know, and the truth of the matter, ma'am, is if you wanted to pull out of these wars, it would take us years. Like, just think of all the equipment we'd have to get and the men and not botch. It was like a video from way back in the day. I mean, it's hard to find this stuff now. But, you know, it's just funny that, you know, now fast forward and that's basically exactly what he did. But I guess, you know, the greater, uh, you know, argument is that he at least did the right thing. And, you know, and I, I sort of wanted to I, maybe this get pulled out of context. But, you know, I was thinking, hey, maybe I can identify as a Taliban and I'll get a free M4 and, you know, a helicopter <laughs> and whatever else. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure if I ever run for office, they'll you know, pull that clip out of there. But uh, I'll
1: tell yeah. you what, man, you you look at the Taliban police force in Kabul right now. They're all wearing American fatigues and carrying M4s and look very professional.
0: Yep. But anyways, we definitely appreciate your time today. It's been great. I know that you're someone that, you know, we've wanted to have on for a long time. You guys can find all of Scott Horton's work at scotthorton.org. I'll get that up on the screen right now. And, you know, there, you know, in the upper left-hand corner, you can see his book, Enough Already, Time to End the F- the War on Terrorism, right below that, fool is Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And then to the right, you'll see uh, links to antiwar.com, the Libertarian Institute, then also Scott's radio show, which is then also transposed, uh, I believe, as a podcast. And Scott's just been, you know, a prolific writer, content creator, done like over 5,000 different interviews going back almost 20 years. So Highly recommend people check out the Scott Horton Show and Scott Horton at scotthorton.org. Thank you so much, Scott,
1: for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Great to talk with you both. Yeah, thank you.